Hi there, this is Danny, and I'm coming to you from Toronto, Canada, and you're listening to another episode of Stuttering is Cool. Today I'll be exploring the effect of change that comes with stuttering acceptance and fluency. But first, you're listening to The Break with Father Roderick. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of The Break. That's a clip from one of my favorite podcasts, uh, The Break with Father Roderick. It's a podcast about TV, movies, fitness, tech, video games, you name it. It's produced by a priest living in the Netherlands, and I sponsored three episodes of The Break recently. And I wanted to share what Father Roderick said on his show about my show, and he also shared a story about a stuttering student uh, during his his school days. This episode of The Break is brought to you by my good friend Daniel Rossi from Canada. He's a, a, a long-time listener to uh, The Break and to uh, its previous incarnation, The Daily Breakfast and many other SQPN shows. And I met Daniel when I was visiting uh, Toronto and, uh, and other cities in Canada a couple of years ago. And uh, he has he's a podcaster himself um, and a comic book artist, if I'm not mistaken. He's, he's, he's got just great drawing skills. Um, but he's got a podcast about stuttering. And that might be a subject that you don't expect in a podcast. But he's got this uh, awesome podcast uh, called Stuttering is Cool. And so it's all about, you know, the the... Uh, uh, raising awareness about stuttering and about the people that that have you know that that's perhaps struggle with stuttering or don't struggle with it at all. I mean, you can you can be cool even if you stutter, or perhaps because you stutter. That's kind of the he's got a very positive approach to stuttering, which is still for for children that that have this problem and and adults that 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 have uh, that, that that have um, how do you say that that stutter. But that have the, I don't even know exactly what the definition of stuttering is, but anyway, um, uh, sometimes you know there there is a, there is a, a lot of uh, shame associated to this, or it can make children very insecure. I remember a, a kid in my class on in 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 uh, when I was still in uh, in uh, primary school uh, that had uh, uh, started to show signs of stuttering, and it just started to appear like that, like. From one year to another, all of a sudden he started stuttering, and I remember that that there you know he he was always afraid to talk in class, and uh, and, and I remember our, our teachers really try, trying to help him and motivate him, and tell him that whatever you do, even if you stutter, don't stop asking questions, don't stop talking. You know, we will just be patient, and uh, certainly we don't want you to feel bad about yourself because you stutter. Uh, that doesn't change at all who you are, and I still remember that uh, up until today. And 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 I think it was a very good approach at the time, and uh, I think it prevented um, the this kid from from being uh, harassed. You know, like the kids can be very cruel towards each other, especially if you have something uh, like uh, that 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 is not part of the the mainstream. You know, whatever is cool. And uh, I, I was targeted many times in, when I was a kid uh, because I, you know, I had glasses and uh, I was very bad at sports. And uh, gosh, uh, I wasn't a cool kid at all. And um, 
but they're on the, the primary school where I lived. Uh, they they were, I think, very modern in, in their approach, and they were always like, you know, it doesn't matter uh, how you speak or what you look like or if you're good at sports or not. You know, that should never uh, um, determine your your. That, that this should never determine the value of someone. It's, it's about the heart. You, know, you have to look at, at you know the inside, not not on the outside. And so, anyway, all that uh, to, uh, to 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 again uh, give a plug to uh, uh, this stuttering is cool podcast. Um, and uh, Danielle has this great slogan for his series for his show. Uh, you might and here it is. You might have seen the king's speech. Now find out more about stuttering, because of course, in the King's speech, stuttering is uh, well, it's part of the part of the reasons I think that this movie made such a a, a big impression on people. And uh, so, anyway, check it out for yourself, either by going to iTunes and and look for the podcast "Stuttering Is Cool," or just go to stutteringiscool.com. So, stuttering is cool.com. Thanks to Danielle Rossi for sponsoring this episode of the Break. Now that's an awesome teacher. Now on to today's theme of ch-ch-ch-changes, and I promise not to sing again. I attended my first stuttering conference last summer in Cleveland in the, Uni- in the United States. I had an enormous amount of fun meeting online friends for the first time, meeting new people, and st- and stuttering openly and freely in a hotel booked up with about 700 other stutterers trust me it was a, um, a fantastic experience uh in fact in f- fact i created a whole episode i recorded a whole episode throughout the conference uh you'll find it on stutteringschool.com it's episode number 90 i also enjoyed uh, the keynotes and the workshops now one workshop in particular uh, which both surprised and resonated the heck out <laughs> the heck out of me. It was hosted by Pam Mertz of the Women Who Stutter podcast, and now also uh, recently launched um, History or His Story. She asks him, a podcast telling stuttering men's stories. Anywho, Pam's workshop was uh, about change. But not just ordinary change, um, because we all know what change is, but um, how change changes everything. As a person who stutters, who's had a great deal of change in my own life in the last four to five years, one of the things that I noticed along the way was not only were certain aspects of my life changing, but so were my relationships with other people um, who were sig- sig- significant to me. For instance, friends, um, co- 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 co-workers, family members, and um, even my significant other who I'd been in a relationship for a long time. And I noticed that when something changes, everything else changes as well. I was intrigued. For instance, when a person loses a great deal of weight, um, suddenly they feel like a different person. They may be per, 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 perceived as a different person. And their relationships with others might change because they're actually 
being looked at differently. Maybe in some regards they're looked at more attractively by the opposite sex or what have you. So I have found that when change happens to us, it's really important to, 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 to remember that the change isn't only happening to us. The change also happens to the other people in our lives. As I became more open and honest and authentic about my stuttering and came out of the covert closet and began to embrace my stuttering and made some really significant changes in my mindset, I became a more confident person and therefore things and situations and people around me changed in order to adapt to that new person I had become. In her workshop, Pam shared how her significant other was used to the old Pam, the quiet, timid Pam who deferred everything to him. The new one wasn't the woman he had loved. In her workshop, Pam explained how she realized that he wasn't involved in her life transformation from quiet, shy to independent and able to make decisions and overt stuttering. So so ultimately, with other complex changes, the relationship ended. I had said at the beginning that Pam's story resonated and startled me into realizing that I hadn't involved my my family and friends. I did not even think to involve them, uh, to be honest, uh, in my transformation from covert stutterer to fully accepting my speech impediment and putting on presentations and uh, and such. As I listened to Pam during her workshop. I realized that to my family, it must have seemed like suddenly out of nowhere. I was giving presentations at podcasting conferences, producing a podcast, and even going on national national television to talk about stud, stud, stuttering. The, the topic of stuttering doesn't normally come up during dinner kind of conversation. It's almost a year later and Pam's loving and still adjusting to her new life, trying new things, meeting new people, going on TV, winning awards. So yeah, a year later, I'm still thinking about the importance of involving your family and friends as you take speech therapy and start becoming more extroverted, trying new things, becoming a whole new you. In fact, I've asked a couple of friends if they experienced an unexpected changes after speech therapy. First up, previous stuttering is cool guest, Sarah Bryant. I was in a coffee shop and I sat at down be 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 because I was meeting my friend there and I got there about five minutes early and I found the one open 
table that they had, and there was only one. chair there and there were two guys sitting at a t -t 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 table right next to me and so I just asked them if I could have the ch -ch chair that 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 they were not using, and so I took the ch 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 chair and put it at the t t table that I was at, and I sat down. And then he saw that I ha had my c c c college shirt on, and he asked me how, how, how I uh, uh, liked the school and I was t -t -t telling him that I love the school and he mentioned that he 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 had had a fr fr friend that went to the same school, and he starts to ask me questions and what surprised me so much was when he asked me the question about the school I struggled so much while giving my answer to his question that I didn't expect him to want to talk to me more. Um, <laughs> and something else that I didn't expect was he did not try and finished my sentence for me. He didn't look away. I was just really sort of shocked that he was just sitting there and keeping natural eye contact while I was struggling to get out a word. And we sat and talked for probably close to t t t t 10 minutes and during the, that whole, whole, whole t t t time I was really struggling to get out my words and he 
he still wanted to 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 talk to me and that um i i i guess in my head i didn't think people would want to talk to me if i if i struggled like that you know if i had that much of a hard time of t -t talking i thought he would get up and walk away or go back to his laptop that he 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 had sitting on the t -t on the t -t table you know i i i didn't think he would actually be interested in what i was saying be 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 because of how i was saying it so how has that uh, created change i i i i think that showed me that even though i was struggling a lot in that c c conversation that by itself did not mean that a per per person would not want to 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 talk to me and i think because of that experience i am more open to 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 talking to people at, at, out in public that i don't know and saying uh, uh okay i might struggle a lot in this situation um but that doesn't mean that the person doesn't want to to talk to me sarah recently experienced some changes sarah sarah also walked into a bank to deposit a check one of the many familiar speaking situations we all uh, dread <laughs> like asking someone if uh, if a chair is free at a cafe and i ha handed the lady behind the c counter my check and the little flip that you fill out and as she was doing her thing she asked me something and I responded back to her and we had a good, you know, 30 second or so c c c conversation while she deposited my check. And in that situation, I said more than I had to. And that's something that I would never have done in that situation, you know, to actually talk to the person behind the counter. And I was stuttering a lot while I was talking. And she didn't seem to care. So that was kind of cool to mm. see that, you know, just because <clears throat> I was stuttering, you know, she, she was more c concentrated on 
what I was saying as opposed to the fact that I was stuttering. Jan Peel, also a previous Stuttering is Cool guest and co-founder of the Canadian Stuttering Association, the International Stuttering Association, and the Estonian Stuttering Association. See, see where I'm going with this? Jan had speech therapy in Edmonton, Canada with the iStar program. We, we met at a cafe. Another splendid speaking situation, or during food and try not not to block on anything. I know uh, when I was in Edmonton, I met quite a few people, or I heard of people who went through quite a few changes uh, once they achieved fluency. And in Edmonton, uh, is this the I Star program? Yeah, the I Star program, the Institute for Stuttering Treatments and Research. It's really quite remarkable. Uh, some people can go from severe stuttering to having uh, pretty fluent speech. And that can have a tremendous impact on a person. And like one example is, uh, I heard of a woman who liked to stay at home and then she went through the program and then she wanted to just go and party. She just wanted to spend time talking with people going to parties, and for her husband, who was used to her being at home, it, you know, it took some time, I guess, uh, to make the adjustment. And uh, I've heard of other stories where one spouse, say we'll take the example of a, of a husband, and her, uh, let's see, a husband who stutters and the wife spends all her time being the phone person. She would make all of his phone calls and then all of a sudden, after many years, uh, he goes through this program and he comes out and from now on he makes all the phone calls. <laughs> and the wife all of a sudden has lost a very important role. And so it's a real uh, struggle at first to deal with that. And I've heard of other, and, and another example might be um, a person goes through a program, achieves fluency, and, and finds it hard to relate to his old friends because they all see this person in a particular role. And in that case, uh, what this one person, uh, well, what Einar Bolberg, who was the, one of the two people who's, who started this program, would sometimes tell someone, look, uh, or else someone told him that what they did was they began to find a new circle of friends to add to their old circle. Because with their new circle of friends, they had another kind of a role. And the old role, it no longer had to be pushed aside because all of a sudden you're playing a new role. You have a new persona. And that's a really interesting aspect. Uh, Is that because uh, the old circle was never involved during the transformation process? That's a really interesting question. Uh, yes, they would not have been involved. And in fact, the Edmondson program 
these days really makes an effort to include the family and, and close people in the transformation process. Uh, both in terms of transfer and maintenance of fluency skills, but I think perhaps even that aspect, I'll have to ask, but I think that aspect is important. And something I've noticed myself, um, I've noticed quite a few things actually over the years. <laughs> it's been about 24 years. Um, each of us has a particular persona. And if we stutter severely, as I did, you know, I, you know, there were days when I could barely get out a word at all, uh, which meant that I didn't have the same kind of power as I did afterwards, in the years afterwards. And some of the people I've dealt with all my life, you know, would certainly have gotten used to me as the person who didn't have that power. And then, you know, over the past 24 years, I achieved quite a level of fluency and established my power in a, a different way from before. You know, I was, I could speak up for myself. I could establish myself in a group. I could uh, do kinds of work that I couldn't do before. And so sometimes it's happened that people quotes from the past <laughs> would try to deal with me in a particular way and they didn't quite clue into the fact that they weren't dealing they're still dealing with the same person I mean deep inside I haven't changed but I'm much more capable this reminds me of back in university in my sociology class was it yeah um, this is me thinking out loud and waking up a distant memory <laughs> where the professor was saying um, explaining how something like we like people in general expect other people to behave in a certain way no that's the way you are so when you change it's, no, you're not supposed to be like that because we're resistant to change or something. I'm just blowing smoke. <laughs> no, no, but that's waking up. I completely forgot about that, how he said, yeah. Yeah, so I wonder if it's the same thing. I guess it's the same thing happening where, or perhaps, you know, you go, you go away to speech therapy. It's like going away on a trip and you come back. This totally different person. Like who's the, like this is something happened to you while you were in uh, Edmonton or something, so it's kind of like invasion of the body snatchers or some. So I could see how that, how even though it's a positive change, you know, it's something. Hey, now you can speak up for yourself. You can go out and order. You can become a teacher now. Um, it's still startling. You've lost your friend that you've known, or your son, or you know, brother, or whatever. Yeah, yeah I think uh, that uh, is a good way to describe the process, what's going on. But it's it's so true about roles. Um, we have uh, there's a sociologist or or social psychologist, I guess, uh, Irving Goffman, 
who was big in the 1960s, and he still has had a he's had a lasting impact on our understanding of how how people relate to each other. And he has what's called a dramaturgical perspective on interaction that each of us has a role to play. And in order for roles to work, we have what's called a definition of a situation where each of us agrees to certain things so that the role that the play can continue. So like a first date, kind of, mm -hmm. you have the... No, wait, let's try something else. In a job interview situation, right? You're going to be, you know, very proper, very conservative. You're going to listen to the person. Whereas once you get the job, the first day on the job, you're a bit nervous, quiet. Hello, how are you? Blah, blah. And then maybe a month or eight, you're like really informal and you're yelling at your boss. and <laughs> Something like that? Yes. In fact, yeah, there are rules on how we're supposed to behave in certain situations. And in fact, uh, it's something called impression management. And when this concept of impression management was first discussed in the 1970s or so, everybody would say, well, this is so manipulative, you shouldn't even be talking about this. But in fact, now it's accepted in, in, in public relations and in all communications work. It's accepted as yeah. simply it's a part of what we do. And in the job situation, we, for example, we find ways to accentuate our achievements. You know, uh, we find all kinds of ways to get across what great people we are, and that's impression management. Anyway, to go back to my own story after I went to Edmonton, uh, before I went to Edmonton, I couldn't make uh, presentations to large groups. Uh, with uh, one exception in, in high school, I was able to become president of the Students' Council because I made a fantastic speech, but it was because I rehearsed, I rehearsed extensively beforehand. And I, it just happened to work out that way that as soon as I was on the stage and the microphone was in front of me, many people in the audience were aghast that I had walked up but in fact, I made a very powerful presentation and I won the uh, student election by a landslide. But aside from that... Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. But aside from that occasion, I couldn't do any, any public speaking to speak of. And I still remember when I went to Edmonton, we had this sort of intake interview and I was asked what I expected to get from this uh, treatment program. I said I hope to be able to uh, make presentations to, you know, to large audiences. And when I said that to the, the clinician who was asking me, I thought to myself, you know, maybe I'm expecting a bit too much. Maybe this is a, a dream that is unrealistic. And she just said, oh, that's fine. Okay, we'll work on that. We'll make sure that you achieve that. And I did. So when I came back, I began to make presentations to large audiences. I found the opportunities and uh, I rehearsed, I planned everything and, you know, I would be speaking and lo and behold, the words came out smoothly and I was in charge of what I was saying and it worked out fine. But I had this inner voice that said, you're not supposed to be able to do this. I you the same thing. 
Yes, all uh, the the, uh, the uh, time, and I think it's um, it feels like it's ingrained in me. It's something that I've been used to growing up. That's not for me. That's not for me. You know, it's that whole um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, you you're not you're not deserving of success. You're, you know, you're a you're a second banana to everybody else. Like that, and to this day, I still find myself like I catch myself thinking that, even though I'm not consciously thinking it. It's the idea of I'd be giving a presentation, and then I'd suddenly find myself thinking, "Oh my gosh, I'm giving a presentation. This is not supposed to happen." Or I'm on TV. I wasn't supposed to do well on you know the CBC National. Like I was, I was regretting watching myself, and I'm like this with you know my hands covering my face and going. Oh my gosh, I did well. How did that happen? Or yeah, yeah. And uh, even in going through the job interviews now, I'm thinking, no, there's no way I'm going to get a job. No, way. like it's still there after all of these years. Like it's it's a mind trip. <laughs> it is. It's a mind trip. And so the storyline, you know, of this part of me was telling me, you're not supposed. You're not supposed to be able to do this. You're supposed to be falling flat on your face. And uh, now this bothered me. Uh, it bothered me a lot. It does. And I would explain it to one of my friends uh, at the time, uh, who would say, "Well, you know, what's the problem? You have fluency. You're able to make a presentation. So why should this bother you?" And I could understand that perspective because this person's response was based on a lifetime of fluency and they just couldn't picture what it would be like for someone to go through many decades of life without being able to speak in front of a group and now being able to do this. Now I could have dealt with this through addressing it as self-talk. Uh, I had learned in Edmonton how to make cognitive changes with, uh, with negative self-talk. For example, if I agreed to make a presentation, as the pres- presentation became, uh, came closer, I would say to myself, well, why did I ever agree <laughs> to make this presentation? Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so I was taught, uh, or I learned, I was taught I, and I learned uh, how to address this. I mean, what I would do in a case like this is I would just get an index card, I would draw a line down the middle on one side, in fact on the right hand side I would write what I was saying to myself, and then on the left hand side I would write the alternative thoughts, uh, which in this case would be I'm really, I'm really looking forward to speaking, or no, this speaking situation, this presentation gives me, is, is a wonderful opportunity to see how close I can get to speaking at 220 syllables a minute. So every time this thought, every, it starts with a feeling. Every time the feeling would come along, I would just tell myself this line. And so that kept the thoughts and the feelings well under control. But in the case of this uh, 
big voice that kept on bothering me, I didn't think of using the index card, and perhaps it was because it was just too powerful. It was overwhelming. It really bothered me. And so at first I thought, because it's bothering me, it's because, because it's bothering me so much, I should see a psychotherapist. But then I thought, you know, instead of seeing a psychotherapist, why don't I just, what I really need to do, I realized, was to compare notes with other people who stutter, with other people who'd been through similar experiences. That led me to work for two or three months to organize the founding of a local self-help group in Toronto for people who stutter. Uh, it was called the Stuttering Association of Toronto, or SAT for so you're sure. the one that started the whole thing? I started it. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> you're most welcome. <laughs> okay, and uh, so I uh, organized my first, uh, my, my spiel, my presentation, and it went very well, and uh, we got a great group going. Uh, we met every two weeks or so, and... Uh, after about a year of this local group, we invited uh, Tony Churchill, who is a speech therapist who stutters, he's from Mississauga, to be a guest speaker at one of our meetings. And he spoke, and after he spoke, I spoke with him and I asked him, I asked him about this inner voice that was telling me I should be falling flat on my face. And he looked at me and he said, you know, what you're dealing with is what that inner voice is telling you is that you need to adjust to some changes that have occurred in your life. After he told me that, the inner voice never bothered me again. And, but what happened was that by that time, around 1989, we began to talk among ourselves that we really should organize a national conference for people who stutter. It had never been done in Canada before. And that led to the first national conference for people who stutter, which was held in Bath in 1991, in August. That led to the forming of the Canadian Stuttering Association. And so by this stage of my life, I had become active in the stuttering community. And this inner voice had led me <laughs> to become involved. And uh, I went to Estonia and I delivered a series of lectures to Estonian speech therapists and people who stutter from across Estonia in 1990. That led to the founding of the Estonian Stuttering Association in 1993. Also, I became active at the international level. I was involved first with the International Fluency Association. I was involved in some of the first networking among national self-help associations from around the world. And in 1995, I was one of the co-founders of the International Stuttering Association. Wow, you've kept yourself busy. That was Jan Peel, and before that we heard from Sarah Bryant and Pam Merckx. Have some stories or feedback you'd, you'd like me to include on my next episode? Record it in a sound file and an MP3 is fine. And email it to coolstutter at gmail.com. I also accept text emails which I read on the air, but playing sound files is a lot more fun.
I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did putting it together. Thank you for subscribing, and if you're not subscribed, consi- consider subscri- subscribing. <laughs> Details are on stutteringiscool.com. Until next time, communication is important. Involve your loved ones during your transformation. Ciao.